Father God, you are worthy of our praise. We are unworthy to give it to you. And yet through Jesus, you have cleansed us, redeemed us, brought us back to yourself. And for this we say thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. In Matthew 24, verse 35, it says, My words will never pass away. And one of the first books to come off the newly invented printing press was the Bible, and it's still the world's best-selling book today. Someone has written the following. It contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the fate of sinners, and the happiness of believers. The word of God is a light to direct us, food to nourish us, and comfort to cheer us. Let's pray. Father God, open our hearts and our minds this morning to receive your good word as it is read and spoken to us through your servant, Duncan. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be the participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are you trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God.
Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Uh, next week, we're going to start a new series in the lead up to Christmas called Veiled in Flesh. And we're going to, what we're going to be doing is looking at a key passage each week that talks about why Jesus came. So that's going to be a good opportunity um, to maybe bring someone along to hear, hear the good news of Jesus. Okay, uh, but on to uh, our talk today. So uh, I, I wonder how was your run this week? There we go. Um, we all went for a run this week. Did you know that? Um, even those of us who would never strap on running shoes, because all of us are in the one race that really counts, right? Uh, we saw that last week. Paul describes the Christian life like a race. He says, run with your eyes on the prize, the eternal crown. Uh, I mentioned also last week I've stuck this note on my computer um, with some, help, some just helpful reminders for coming out of the passage, and it was very helpful this week because I've had major frustrations with my computer. Um, I think it might have been sort of God's sense of humour, maybe his kindness. I was getting, when I was getting frustrated and angry, it kept freezing and stalling and rebooting. I had that in front of me. Keep my eyes on the prize, an eternal, an eternal reward. Uh, heed the warning of those who fell. Put my confidence in God alone, not, not my computer. <laughs> um, but as we head into this passage, Paul keeps going with this image of running Except this time it's more like this. I uh, love this picture. I mean, I think she's safe, so don't... Um, but uh, this time, the running that Paul has in mind is more like this. Less of a race to the finish line and more of a kind of run-for-your-life kind of run. Poor girl. Um, we saw from at the end of last week's passage, you remember this, that God is faithful... And when we're tempted to, to sin, when we're tempted to move away from him, he will provide a way out. Now, the big threat that Paul's dealing with in these chapters is, of course, the issue of idolatry, um, how the Corinthian Christians should live in a culture that's swept up in the, wor the worship of false gods. And he wraps up this, as he wraps up this section, uh, Paul says that when it comes to idolatry, God's going to provide a way out. He's already said that. When it comes to idolatry, the way out that God provides is that. Is to flee. To run from it as far and as fast as you can. He says in verse 14, straight after saying God's going to provide a way out, verse 14, Therefore, my dear friends, flee. Flee from idolatry. Now, idolatry in the ancient world meant actually bowing down to literal statues, right? Um, the gods of the nations that were represented in these statues in temples around the place. Uh, uh, or we've already heard Paul in, back in chapter 8 say that those idols, those statues, they're actually nothing. There's no actual God behind it. There is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live, and one Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so there's, the, the idols are nothing. So the Corinthians were free. They were free from the kind of relentless demands of the idols. The thing about idols is they demand from you. And they're never satisfied. 
The gods of the ancient world were kind of fickle. They were malicious. They were needy. They required constant sacrifice just to keep them happy. But the Corinthians had come to know Jesus. Or rather, wasn't this lovely a few weeks ago we looked at this? Not just to know Jesus, but to be known by him. That's what had happened to them. And in Jesus, they had found the God who didn't demand sacrifices from them in order to be accepted. They had come to know the one who sacrificed himself for them so that they could be accepted by grace alone. And that changes everything. It changes everything. Uh, the issue they're trying to figure out, this church, the issue they're trying to figure out is whether they can eat food that had been sacrificed to these idols. And Paul, remember this from a few weeks ago, he says, of course you can, you're free. Uh, there's nothing spooky about the food. It's just food. But, remember this from, again, chapter 8, there is more to the story than just that. There's more going on. It's not just about you and your freedoms and your rights. Back in chapter 8, remember this? It's about love. Loving your brothers and sisters in Christ so you don't put any stumbling block in their way. Or in chapter 9, it's about loving those who are outside of Christ, giving up your rights so they can hear and trust in the gospel. And so what Paul does in this, this passage is wrapping up this section. He brings it back to this issue of idolatry and food sacrifice to idol, idols. And there's even more to say than he's already said. You are free. Idols are nothing. But that doesn't mean there's nothing to think about at all. And he goes on to use the Lord's Supper as an illustration for why that's the case. Verse 15, he says, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. So see what Paul's saying? Think about what's going on in the Lord's Supper. On one level, it's just drinking from a cup and eating some bread. But, but there's more going on than that. You'd see what Paul calls it. He calls it a participation in the blood and body of Christ. That's a really important word for Paul, participation. Uh, the, it has the idea behind it of kind of being joined together, of partnership together, of a deep fellowship. And Paul says what's going on in the Lord's Supper is you're using symbols to express and even to deepen your relationship to Jesus and not only with Jesus, but with each other as the one body. There's, no, there's nothing special about the bread and the cup. Um, uh, that's, some Christians have thought that, but I, I don't think that's actually what Paul teaches here. There's nothing special about them at all. But sharing in, but in sharing this symbolic meal together, there is something special going on, a real participation together. Verse 18, he says it's the same thing going in the Old Testament in the temple. Uh, and, and Paul says it's the same thing with taking part in idol feasts. So there's a bit of a shift that goes on between chapter 10 and here. Back then, Paul has in mind, I think, food that you'd get from the shops and that had already been sacrificed to idols. Remember the, the markets? Almost inevitably, all, most of the food you eat had already been sacrificed to an idol. 
It seems like here, though, in chapter 10, the focus is not so much on just kind of uh, eating that food, but actually participating in ceremonies and rituals that are bound up with the worship of these false gods, of these idols. Um, so it seems like there were some in Corinth who were Christians, but also they just wanted to continue to participate uh, in the, the stuff that the rest of their society did, in the ceremonies that involved eating and where idols were worshipped. And it's understandable on one level, right? Like there's, there's huge social pressure on them. The idol temples, and they were actually like a, a centre of cultural, communal life together. They had, um, they had kind of rooms where you, that you could go to have meals together. Uh, birthdays were celebrated. Business deals were done. Connections were made. So not to join in would have caused huge strain and tension. But Paul couldn't be clear enough or stronger he says if you do you're playing with fire of course the idols are nothing in themselves Uh, Paul reminds them of that in verse 19 but that doesn't mean there aren't real forces at play here there is a spiritual reality that's opposed to God an unseen realm with forces who hate God and want to enslave you And they will use anything that they can get their hands on to draw people away from Jesus. So, the idols were just bits of wood or stone. But Paul says in verse 20 that the sacrifices of pagans are actually offered to demons, not to God. One of the great dangers of idolatry is it's so deceptive. Um, I I saw saw this video a few weeks ago. It was doing the rounds. just a short video of a lobster crawling towards what it thinks is a pool of water. And it kind of crawls over and dives in, only to find that what it thought was a pool of life-giving water was actually boiling oil. Uh, it's a bit brutal, I know, uh, but it, it went quickly. Uh, it's, but it's a, great illustration, it's a great illustration of how we think sin and idolatry will actually give us life. We creep towards it. But it's actually boiling oil that's going to destroy us. And Paul says, just like the Lord's Supper is a participation with Jesus in his body and his blood, taking part in idol feasts is, a, is in the same kind of way, is a participation with demons, with spiritual forces. And he says, you can't have both. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So friends, once you see that behind the idol, of course the idols were nothing, but behind it, there were real spiritual forces at work. I think that's when you see how idolatry doesn't have to be literally bowing down to a statue. Um, In some places and in some times, that is the form it takes. Some of us may have experienced that. But Satan is just as happy to use the gold in your bank account to draw you away from Christ as he is a golden statue. If he can get you to worship that, to put that in God's place, he's happy. Idolatry is first and foremost not about what we bend our knees to, 
but what we bend our hearts to. What we bend our hearts to. And that means anything that's not God can become an idol for you, for us. Uh, and often, this is why it's so, idolatry is so deceptive, often it can be a really good thing. A relationship, a job, even our family, when it stops being a good thing that you receive and becomes a God thing that you must have at all costs and that you are looking to for your purpose and significance, it's become an idol. And our modern gods are just as relentless and demanding as those ancient idols. They don't give life. They only take it. So you, uh, you might worship status or money or sex or your appearance or the approval of others. Worship those gods and they will never have enough. You will always be sacrificing to them. You will never have security or peace. It's a great quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The long, terrible history of man trying to find something other than God which will make them happy. That's what our idols are. Trying to find something other than God that will make us happy. And God says to us through his apostle Paul, That the way out he provides from idolatry is run, flee it, flee it. So that's the negative command and we need to hear it, we need to hear it. But there's also a positive command here, a positive one. Uh, That's kind of the second half of this passage Paul shifts to. We don't just flee from something, we follow someone, we follow someone. Verse 11, uh, sorry, chapter 11, verse 1. Not sure why they put the chapter division there. But uh, anyway, chapter 11, verse 1, Paul wraps this up by saying, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is so helpful in navigating how to live in a world of idols. We have people who've gone before us who've done it. We, we see the life of the Apostle Paul. It's kind of a worked example. But ultimately, you see where our, our, our model is? It's Jesus. It comes from Christ himself. And there are two things Paul highlights about the way he follows Jesus in living in a world of idols. There's two things that he highlights. Following Christ means he, he wants to have two great goals, two great motivations for whatever he does, for whatever you do. Verse 31, we get the first one. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Uh, That's how Jesus lived. He lived for the glory of his Father. He lived in obedience to his Father's will. Living for God's glory means you won't have anything to do with idols. You will flee from them. But there's more to say than that. It's not just that. Do you notice how naturally Paul just moves from talking about living for God's glory and everything to his next great goal, verse 32. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not, looking, I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. 
We already saw this back in chapter 9. This was Paul's goal to become a slave of all, to win some. He's not talking there about being a pushover, you know, just doing whatever anyone asks him to do. He's talking about giving up his rights so that others can come to know Jesus. And I think we see in this little section is the bigger picture. It's wonderful. See the connection between these two things. Living for God's glory means seeking the salvation of others. And I think that tells us something wonderful about who our good God is. He is the God of salvation whose glory is to save so different from human glory, right? That's so self-focused. God's glory goes out from him in self-giving love. He saves those who are in rebellion against him. He saves at unimaginable cost to himself in the body and blood of Jesus given at the cross. So living for God's glory means living for the good of others and their ultimate good through the gospel. And I think those two great goals that Paul has, are really they kind of are the logic behind what he says in that middle chunk that we haven't really focused on. Verse 23, uh, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. You see that same thing going out there. Uh, this is not neat. Living like this is not neat. It means kind of having a sensitivity to the people around you, uh, taking interest in them. It's actually a really difficult discipline, but something that we need to practice. Take interest in the people around you and think humbly and carefully how you can best serve them for the glory of God. That's what you get in these next verses. Um, so he says, this is the kind of complexity, the messiness of it. He says, if it's just a matter of private eating, go for it, verse 25. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. It all belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's. And not only that, if that's you know, in your own home. Not only that, if your Hindu friend invites you out for a meal, he says, go for it, verse 27. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat, eat whatever is put in front of you without raising questions of conscience. So a Christian is free to do all of those things, but here's where it gets a bit more complicated. Paul kind of imagines this scenario where you're out with a meal, at a meal with unbelieving friends, and in verse 28 he says, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of something I thank God for. See, Paul's free. He's not doing this because he's anxious or nervous about himself. He's doing it out of love. He doesn't, he, he, he does it, uh, he's always got in mind what's going to be helpful for the others around him. Now, I reckon it's a bit tricky to work out the details, what's going on there. Um, there's a couple of different ways you can, uh, of understanding it. I think probably, probably it's another Christian with a weak conscience who's at this meal who's pointing out that the food is idol food to Paul or to this imagined scenario. And Paul says, if, eating, if you eating it would lead this other Christian with a weaker conscience to go against their conscience, then don't do it. 
It could be, though, that the person pointing out it's idol food is a non-Christian and they're letting you know that the food's been dedicated to their God. And Paul doesn't want to be seen to participate in that either. He says, don't do it. It's a bit hard, but um, either way, the principle's the same, right? No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Do everything for God's glory. I came across this really, really helpful chart, I think, summarising these chapters, just to kind of give you a bit of a flowchart in your mind, uh, summarising all the things we've come across. It's by a guy called Vaughan Roberts, adapted from a book he wrote. Uh, you're wondering how to make decisions in a world full of, full of idols? Okay, does the Bible allow it? First question to ask. No, don't do it. Yes? Next question. Does my conscience allow it? Uh, if it doesn't, then don't do it. Listen to your conscience. But if it does, next question, should I exercise my freedom? And here's, here's what to keep in mind. Uh, will it have a bad effect on other believers? That's chapter 8. Will it have a bad effect on non-believers? Chapter 9. Will it ha have a bad effect on my Christian growth? That's what we looked at earlier in chapter 10. If it would, then don't do it. Okay, so you're thinking about what movie to watch with some friends. Um, that's just a helpful thing to go through, right? Does the Bible allow it? Well, maybe. Um, if there's kind of really unhelpful, explicit stuff in there, then probably not, actually. So don't do it. Uh, would my conscience allow it? Um, maybe. It's up, you know, that's kind of individual. But the, the, where this, these chapters really want us to focus is... How does the exercise of my freedom impact the people around me? Would it have a bad effect on someone else? If it would, we don't do it. Would it have a bad effect on, on um, unbelievers who I'm in contact with? If it would, don't do it. Would it actually be just bad for my soul? <laughs> Participating with demons, don't do it. Um, and, but... If it wouldn't, if those things aren't in play, then yes, go ahead, exercise your freedom. Do all for the glory of God. Just a helpful little chart. Okay, friends, what I want to finish is um, this is a messy task, but God came into the mess in Jesus. We do this because Jesus did it first. And in the end, that is our only hope. That is our only hope. Jesus is our example. We're going to actually reflect on that more in the next series, looking at how Jesus shows us what true humanity looks like. But remember the big picture of 1 Corinthians. This whole letter is embraced by the gospel, by Jesus' death at the start and his resurrection at the end, which means Jesus is more than an example. This is a great quote from Martin Luther. Um, the chief article and foundation of the gospel is that before you take Christ as an example, he doesn't say don't take him as an example, we should, we're told to, but before you take him as an example, you accept and recognise him as a gift, as a present that God has given you, and that is your own. This is what it means to have a proper grasp of the gospel, that is of the overwhelming goodness of God. This is the great fire of the love of God for us. How will you flee from the idolatry of your hearts? 
How will you follow Christ in living for God's glory and for the salvation of others? You can't do it in your own strength. You can't do it through your own willpower. Around 200 years ago, a Scottish pastor, a guy called Thomas Chalmers, wrote a book with a great title. The title is The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's in your handout. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Uh, uh, Your affection is what your heart is set on. The point he makes is it's not simply enough to say no to our idols. You might run, flee from one straight into the arms of another. Um, he, he, but he writes this. There is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty and joy. Its desire for one particular object may, may be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. It's old language, but do you get what he's saying? You need something else to expel bell your idols to take that place in your heart we know no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our hearts than this to keep in our hearts the love of god friends we need to be captured by a better vision a purer hope a more wonderful love a new and better affection that can drive out our idols That's why Paul says both flee from and also run to this eternal reward, this better vision, giving glory to Christ our King, setting our hearts on him who leads us out into the world in gospel-shaped love, who, as we're going to sing in a moment, who is himself our daily bread and whose living water satisfies thirsty souls. So let's pray. Our God, we confess that our hearts so often are drawn away by our idols, by things of this world that we are looking to for significance and meaning and purpose. Our God, we we confess this before you. Help us to flee from them. Keep us from fleeing from one idol to another. Though, Give us this great vision of your glory of your glory that is shown most wonderfully in your goodness in the gospel. Uh, Fill our hearts, we pray, with that vision so that there's just not any room for idols to dwell. And we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.